Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, here today with Sarah Masaryk, and we have a team from BiblioGuides with us today. We have Tanya Arnold, Sarah Kim, and Lara Yavarino. Diane, I am really grateful for the opportunity to discuss this book with these wonderful ladies from BiblioGuides. I'm thrilled that we're doing this Mismantle Book Club series, and I'm particularly excited that we can get together and talk about the themes that are in this one. This one's really different than the first book. And it'll be very interesting to see what everybody thinks of it. And for the record, we did not discuss this with each other ahead of time. So everything today is going to be pretty unscripted and raw. But just for our listeners' sake, a reminder, first of all, this is the second book in the Mismantle series, which is being republished by Purple House Press by Margie McAllister. This is a book club that is going to have spoilers. Now, don't worry. We'll let you know exactly when the spoilers are. So you can listen now. And when we move into spoiler territory, we'll give you a big heads up. Thirdly, this is a dynamic book club. We want you to join us, participate, comment. And the best place to do that is either on our Facebook pages or in our beautiful Mighty Networks community. So the link for that can be found in the show notes. So Tanya, Sarah, Lara, welcome. Thank you for being here again. Glad to be here. It's great to be here again. Thanks for having us. So today, as we were getting ready to begin this conversation, Lara and I were doing some mic checks and chatting, and Lara said that in her first reading of the Mismantle book, she had book darts all throughout and really didn't have any for this one. I think that that's an interesting thing, and I, I think it's by design on the part of the author. But Lara, what did you think about that? Why, did, why didn't you have any book darts for this one? Well... It wasn't because I enjoyed it any less. It was pleasurable to read. Didn't have as many like quotable things. It was the big themes of the book that came out and stuck out to me, not like little snippets. I like that. Yeah. In my review, I don't have as many quotes either. So I know what you're saying there. What about you other ladies? What did you think of this book, Broad Strokes, compared to the the first book? I thought it got off to a little bit of a slower start, and it definitely picks up maybe the last third of the book. It's not that nothing interesting happens in the beginning, because it does. A lot of interesting things happen. It just felt a little bit, maybe there was more anticipation in the beginning. Like, I know things are happening and waiting to see what's going to happen. And I think, I think actually, I read this after I read the book, Sarah, in your review of the book, you mentioned how Urchin, he doesn't have as much activity himself. Like, he's also kind of just waiting And maybe that was part of it for me is it just, it has a different feel. It's, it was, I agree. It was still wonderful to read. I loved the story. I thought it was a great book. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about, I think, but it just has a different feel. Like you said, in my review, I highlighted that as well, that there, Urchin is in a real place of waiting and not knowing what's coming. And not necessarily looking forward to what's coming. And I think we really feel that right away. So I've, yeah, I can see what you're saying there. I think that that's accurate. Tanya, what about you? Yeah, I felt similarly to Sarah and Lara. I thought the book feels very different. And I didn't have as many things that I marked. This is kind of funny, but I usually just take a picture with my phone of a page. So I can remember the page number and then I just click, click, click through the book. I I did mark a number of places, but I felt like it was a completely different feel. And part of that for me is I thought it was fairly brilliant of the author because we're no longer on Mismantle. So we've come to a completely different island with a different culture and different animals and a different storyline. And it felt really similar to life, how sometimes you go through challenges similar to maybe the challenges that the animals in Mismantle went through as far as like the way it paced and the challenges and the way they had to address their challenges. And then you have other times in life where you just have to be patient and wait on the timing of things. And there was one thing that came out, it was about not quite halfway through the book. When I read the first book, I remember thinking how hard it was for all of the animals. There was the culling, 
there was what was happening to the king. There were some really hard things from our first conversation. But the thing that jumped out at me so much was when Urchin, he's locked up and he's thinking to himself, this is on page 126. He said, in the days when Husk had controlled King Brushen, mismantle animals had been burdened with long hours of hard work, but it had never been as bad as this. Mismantle animals had never been so miserable and dispirited. The idea that they might have been if Husk had finally triumphed was a thought that chilled his skin. So I thought it was so poignant that what they had been through felt terrible. And then immediately he gets to come to this new place and he gets to see that there's somebody and and an island that's having it worse than they had it. And to me, that puts you in a place of gratitude, no matter how hard it was. It was just so thought provoking and it was so subtle as he's having this realization that there could be a story that's harder than the story that he had. And so I felt like she was laying that groundwork and then you get to see how it gets to evolve. It's thought-provoking, I guess. Yeah, that's beautiful. So Diane, what about you? What did you think? I think if the pacing feels different, that a lot of it's just because we don't have to do all the world building now. You know where you are. We, We do change places, but it's not drastic like we went to another world. So we already know we're dealing with animals, And we know that we're in some other world, so we don't have to do that. You do sort of get on with the story in a different way. Right. And middle books are like this, right? They are building off the momentum of the first, but they are opening up new territory. I wanted to just share a quote and connect it to something Margie said in our interview with her. So the quote is, The heart is wise and mismantle is small small and beautiful. The mists were there to protect us from attack. Our own animals who leave by water cannot return by water. That means that exiles who brought war and misery to our island cannot recruit an army to return and do it all again. But the mists are not there to keep out the valiant and the true. And I wanted to mention that because Margie had said that in the first book, She was constrained by it being a first book, needing to introduce so many things, needing to set a scene, needing to make it a complete story that could be sold as one book. But in the second book and beyond, there was the sense that she could go places with it and do things with it and bend it and twist it and put our characters in much harder places because we were already familiar with the heart. We knew the faithfulness of the heart. I loved knowing that. And I wish I had known that maybe before I had read the book, it would have allowed me to appreciate the pacing of this one a little bit. She's building to a bigger, more complex story. So when I said to Lara, I feel like it was by design. I think she's trying to distinguish this from the first book as being a maturing, a coming of age, and a different a different take on a very complex story that she's building. One of the things I was thinking is how different the book would have been if it was written from Crispin's point of view rather than Urchin's. What a different story it would have told if knowing the pain Crispin's coming from, the burden of his position, what what a different story might have been told. And I've heard of authors, and I don't know if Margie does this, but there's authors that say they can tell you they know what every character is thinking in time, even if it isn't the point of view they picked to tell the story through. When you were talking about, it was a period of waiting for Urchin, I thought it was also really a period of waiting for Crispin. He's coming out of his wife dying. He's waiting for to be crowned king. You know, talk about some a character that really has to wait and what his waiting looked like. Like you didn't get the feeling that all the other characters were tiptoeing around him because he was in so much pain or in such a bad mental place, you know, that given all the burdens that he had. They didn't feel like they had to 
you know, um, be careful around him, that his waiting was patient. And what that probably taught some of the other characters that also had to wait, but maybe a different kind of waiting. Oh, that's a great point. Yes, Margie did say that her characters talked to her and she said, for example, without spoiling Juniper's situation, she said she couldn't believe it when Juniper did the thing that he does. Obviously, she's the author and she's the creator and she's planning this, but she believes that her characters have a will of their own and they will do things that are unexpected. And so this story was as much for a discovery for her as it was for us as the readers. And she is in a position of waiting as well. Yeah, I love what Lara was just sharing, but I also thought they were also waiting on Urchin. The reader gets to see these different perspectives of what's happening on both islands but you're also left with that kind of internal heartache as you know that the islanders don't know. Like only you as the reader have been clued in. And so, and I just think how many times in life is that the situation too? And that's such a good thing to learn. Like when you just have to do the good you can do, do the next right thing and wait. Oh, that's hard. And and you see that it's hard through the book. I want to come back to that when we're, when we're less guarded about spoilers. When uh, Laura was talking about Crispin and, and waiting patiently and the Islanders, uh, his subjects weren't tiptoeing around him and that kind of thing. But also he still was doing what he had to do. It's not like a lot of us would maybe want to do with that kind of tragedy is just back off and everybody serve me for a little while and let me have my space. He was still king. He still had to do all of the king things, whether he felt like it or not. And that that's very admirable. I really love that, too, because as a British author, she is used to having a monarch. And so she has maybe a little different appreciation for the monarchy than the average American does. And so she has this really profound sense of what a king is or what a queen is and what they will do and how they will carry on. And so I love how that translates into the story. And I love how it really helps us to understand that we are all designed for God's glory. And we are all designed to act in a kingly or queenly way. And this is a good example for us. I thought the other big theme that came out to me that plays into this is that faith gives resilience. And I could see where there was different situations where a character would had the opportunity or the circumstances were such that they would feel stress and could react and maybe lose hope. But their faith in the heart gave them that extra ability to hold on, to, to wait patiently, I guess, or to wait with hope. And, you know, you're talking about how a king reacts. Everybody can do the job, but your attitude can be so different in, you know, when you're doing it with a grateful heart or when you're doing it with a hopeful heart or when you're doing it out of pure duty or when you're um, angry about what you have to do. And so I kept thinking over and over again that their faith in the heart gave them resilience and gave them that extra ability to hold on when things looked dark. I love this quote. He swallowed hard before he could get the words out and spoke to the stars. I'm, I am Urchin of the Riding Stars. Do you remember me? Then he wrapped himself in a blanket, curled up beneath the window, and sobbed as quietly as he could. He prayed. He was feeling broken, and he prayed. And did he pray eloquently? No. Did he say anything that would change the world? No. But he spoke honestly to the heart and then just rested in that. I love that. There was one other theme that I really loved. It starts in the first book and it's carrying through in the second book. And that is the importance of the stories of the people. And to keep hope alive is to tell the stories of the island and to remember who they are and where they come from. And so in the deepest times of darkness, there's a lot of storytelling and there's storytelling to heal. There's storytelling to help change minds and hearts. 
there's another quote where it says, in a hushed voice, he whispered to him, telling him stories of Miss Mantle, singing their homeland songs, and wondering what he would do without Juniper to look after. That's one of the things that you can also hold to and draw to, and especially like in your own family, your family stories, your family histories will bring you comfort and courage in times of distress. And that's what they were doing in the story. Yes. Right. The stories of the saints. I mean, obviously as a Catholic, I'm big into the saints, but I think that the stories of the martyrs, the stories of the Christians, the stories of, as you say, our family, there are always stories of those who have persevered in hard times and we can look at them. I felt like this theme of of prayer was, just so prevalent in this book. I found another prayer that I really liked was, I believe, Needle. And she's worried about the other animals. And she says, oh, please, please, heart, keep them. Please. And I'm sorry for all the times I've been snappy with Fingal. Oh, please keep them safe. Please look after them. It was just such a heartfelt, like you said, not eloquent. Just, you know, they're really, they're thinking to to turn to heart when they need help. They're not worried about how they say it. (laughs) So I like that one. And that's what the heart wants. The heart just wants them to turn in who they are and bring their burdens, whatever they are, and leave them there. I love that. I agree, Sarah. I feel like prayer is really the language of this story. It is such the, it is the most prominent current throughout. And I love that we see so many different kinds of prayer. And I think that um, parents may wish to know that this one really is a spiritual battle. We have a very, very evil priest who wants very much to thwart the good with very spiritually complex things. And so this is why prayer is such an essential language of this story, because the only way to combat the kind of evil that's in this story is with humility, prayer, courage, community. In book one, you really see how the characters' choices affect their character and trajectory of the story. Even more so, though, in book two, I think you see that the heart is directing things. And the characters, by their choices, kind of come along, or they don't. But it's really the heart that's determining the outcome. I think you just see that so much more powerfully in this book. I think this one more than in any other book, I would say in this one, the main protagonist of this story is the heart. And I've read all five. And I would say that of the five books, this is the one that has the greatest, most epic spiritual battle. And I think that this spiritual battle then positions our characters in the next three books to be able to fight the other kinds of battles because they've had to win here first. And so when they have identified themselves completely with the heart, there is a huge uh, maturing of them that happens. And this one's a coming of age book, right? The first one, our characters are so tender and innocent. This is the end of innocence. They're going to see really, really tough stuff. I mean, we saw that already with Husk, right? But now now we're getting getting into more, uh, more difficult matter for them. But as Margie said in her interview with us, it's about growth rings. She never damages the child. She allows them to grow. And the same with her characters. Yeah, that's what I was going to say that I saw as well, is that they're learning to hear the heart and connect to the heart. And you see that there was another quote about prayer that I really loved. Alone all day, Juniper would remember the animals and places he loved and hold them in his own heart before the great heart that made them. He was learning to find quietness inside himself. He was learning to pray. And so you see that where they're learning to, like Sarah's saying, you see that the heart is directing things, but you're also seeing that the characters are learning to connect. They're either choosing into the heart or they're choosing in elsewhere. And those that are choosing into the heart are learning how to connect, how to find that stillness, how to pray, how to receive those answers, how to decide what the right thing to do is. So it is that spiritual, there is a strong spiritual component tied to their decisions this time, which I think was there in the first one. It's just more succinct and more poignant, more directed in this book. And 
those who pray together end up being bonded so that their shared prayers also form a kind of connection that would not happen without prayer. I think you also notice the difference, like Diane was saying, that in the first book, the prayer was kind of part of the world building. You were just learning about it and accepting it as part of the world. Now it's it's a, you're you're accepting it as part, but you're seeing it's more the importance of it more. I think it's being allowed to play a bigger role because you've already taken it in as part of the world, as part of the accepted way things are in this universe. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Lara. So I think at this point, we've gone probably as far as we can go without spoilers. And I think it would be a waste of our time if we didn't start talking about these things in the particular. So for our friends who are listening who have not read yet, go ahead and save this and come back and listen once you have. But this is the moment where we are going to start talking about things that you're not going to want to hear unless you've already read or you're okay with with spoilers. So this is the book club book club part of this <laughs> where we're going to 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 lay it all out. All right. So, ladies, who did you hate the most? I would say that Smokewreath is really creepy and really scary. So in the first book, I thought it was a little terrifying that Husk was so drawn to the dark side. And I do want to share because last time I saw Macbeth and Othello in the book. This time I saw Star Wars and I have proof for oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> so I will get there. <laughs> it's still good versus evil. The way he's practicing and connecting into the evil is different than the way Husk did. And it's frightening, I think. And then there's a question as, is this magic or what is this? So Urchin asks the question. Maybe I can quote that because I think it's just, it's powerful and it helps you kind of figure it out in your mind, but it doesn't really answer it either. I mean, it does, but it also leaves it up to the reader to be discerning about it. Excuse me, said Urchin but I don't understand about Smokewreath and his magic. I mean, is it really magic? Does he really have power? Or do they just think he has? It's a good question, said Flame. Certainly he has that extra dimension. He's aware of things that most animals aren't. You could call it a sixth sense, but lots of animals have that and it doesn't make them into sorcerers. In Smokewreath's case, it's enough to convince the king that he is. Whether his magic and all his poking about with dead bodies actually does anything is difficult to prove. But I'll tell you what I do know. Firstly, the king believes in it, and that gives Smokewreath power over him. And I do know that evil is at work in Smokewreath and through him. But unfortunately, evil is at work through lots of animals, like Granite and the king, without there being anything magical about it. I see, said Urchin. The king was fascinated by the magic and feared it too, continued Cedar. It's always the same with magic. Animals think it's a power they can control, but they find out too late that the magic controls them. And then he goes on with some other parts. So it's an interesting idea of what exactly the power is and how it's being applied. Makes me think of all the conversations about fairy tales and how in fairy tales it's really oftentimes the story of the gospel being told. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And so you actually do have the, the themes of goodness and redemption, and then you have the themes of evil and being drawn into darkness. It's not necessarily like magic per se, but it's still a power that's there. I just thought that whole, that whole section was thought provoking and it'll be thought provoking for a child and for a parent to discuss. But what Smokewreath does and how he connects to the evil is disturbing. I think it also speaks to the power of belief. Whether the magic was real or not, the fact that Smoke Wreath believed it was changed his actions. And we've off, I've often thought about faith is only really good if it's placed in the right thing. People who believe strongly in something that isn't real, we just call them crazy. And so, or, or, you know, they have issues. <laughs> and so you think about this king has put his 
belief in something that may or may not be true, but it is affecting his actions and the way he lives. And, and he's letting this source of evil direct his, and, and it's made him crazy. I was just going to point out how I think even before Urchin asks that question, when he first comes before Smoke Wreath, doesn't he like almost laugh? Like he has to stop himself from laughing because he seems so ridiculous. So there is sort of that question, even right at the beginning there of like, is he actually powerful or is he just, you know, can we just take him down? Like, <laughs> you know, but he's like, like Laura and everybody else is saying he's convinced enough people, right. That he is powerful because the King is backing him and, and everything else, but it's almost laughable. It really begs the question, how are people so easily convinced of this? Well, I was a little, the emperor has no clothes for a minute there. It totally wasn't was. Wasn't it? It really was. And then, yes, it, there was just, you could, I'm thinking of the emperor has no clothes and how the people are all like, we don't, we don't know what smoke wreath is doing, but now he's creating energy around that and mm-hmm. causing dynamics to happen. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's all really crazy. And how did we get from here to here in such a short time? I think. I am a believer in spiritual warfare. I I mean, I, think that there is power when you make deals with the devil. You can get power. The power ultimately controls you, as we saw with Husk. But I think that Silver Birch and Smoke Wreath are laughable, but also to be feared because they do have power. I think that Urchin's anxiety is not ill-placed. I think Cedar's anxiety is she has seen how far their wickedness will go. She is acutely aware of how awful their power really is, how much of it is perceived, how much of it is real. Can they, in fact, do things that are outside of what the normal can do? I I don't know. I think that they have a reasonable cause for concern there. And so their fear is real and justified. And it just makes their sacrifices so much more powerful and winning. But did anybody else, okay, Hamilton lovers, Tanya, I'm looking at you. Did anybody else read Silver Birch in the voice of King George? <laughs> no, but now I will. <laughs> when I read him all loud, I was like, this is King George. And I found myself <laughs> imitating him. <laughs> oh, he's ridiculous and yet so powerful and terrifying because he's so unpredictable. One minute he's laughing, the next minute he's crying. You don't know which you don't know which version you're going to get in that particular moment, and it's going to be different than a version you're going to get ten minutes later. <laughs> oh, that's fun, right? I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Now I'm going to have to find a a video to show people in the show notes. This is what I mean. (laughs) Well, and then if you, if you add it to the song, right, I'll kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Yeah. Right. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) But doesn't unpredictability add to the terror of evil? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. When you don't know where it's coming from, when it's how to prepare, how to defend yourself. And I think, you know, whereas you you always expected Smoke Wreath to be evil, you never knew what you were going to get with the king. And so that made your unease when he showed up on the scene even stronger because you're like, I don't know what he's going to do. He could at any minute end all of this. And, and I think the other thing that was scary is that he had the ability to control the mob and mob mob thought is about as terrifying as unpredictability. Because it is unpredictable. (laughs) True. (laughs) I completely agree with you about the mob. I think that that was the terrifying part is he could whip them into a frenzy so easily and made me so fearful for Cedar and for those in the caves because you saw that the good people were really in peril and because they were going to be so quickly and so easily betrayed by their own. And that just brings us right back to our discussion of the borrowed house. I have to say that it took me a minute to figure out Cedar was not the hidden queen. I thought she was going to end up being the queen 
And I and when she wasn't, I was like, wait a minute, what? Who is this other person? Me too. I was actually a little disappointed when I found out that Cedar wasn't the queen. I was like, really? But she's so perfect. And then I was so pleased to realize that Margie was showing us, but that would have been self-serving if she had been in the guard and had been protecting Urchin for herself. And it would have made her maybe a little less noble. And, you know, there's other things for her to do anyway. So I can say this, that I have not read beyond this book. So this is not a spoiler. But maybe she has the characteristics of a queen because she's going to become a queen. So, Well, it's a possibility. Or Margie might do something else, too. But it's going to be good. It's going to be good. That's what I can tell you. <laughs> so let me just touch on my Star Wars you said that this was more of a coming of age and you see characters who are young making decisions like Juniper and even Urchin as he learns more about his story it makes him consider what his role is to play so everyone has a role like the heart is directing there there is a role and for his focus a lot of the time is he knows there needs to be an apprentice in various positions and i just kept thinking of Yoda saying Always two there are, no more, no less, a master and an apprentice. So Fur knew he needed an apprentice, and we're seeing the raising up of an apprentice. And, you know, Crispin is going to need someone. And so you just, I kept seeing that playing out. I just kept, I just kept hearing Star Wars themes in my mind (laughs) as they're learning and as they're growing and as they're understanding the responsibility And as you're seeing the light versus darkness, and as you're also seeing choosing into darkness, that's a a theme in Star Wars too, like what you decide to choose and what you decide to feed and what leads to the dark side. So for anybody that loves Star Wars, I I think there's some fun tie-ins if you look there. I love Star Wars. I do too. (laughs) (laughs) So great. (laughs) The old stuff. (laughs) So you can go from Shakespeare to Star Wars and everywhere in between, and it's kind of fun in the first two books. Okay. Well, I just need to make sure everybody knows about William Shakespeare's Star Wars. I know, right? right? Yes. Right? It's the best. Does anybody else know? Sarah knows. From Biblio Guides. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So we will definitely link to William Shakespeare's Star Wars because it's pretty amazing. I think it's funny how everybody brings the canon of literature they've read with them. You don't ever read a book in a vacuum. You know, you bring with you the things that you've read. And to me, it was the scene where um, Urchin decides he's going to sacrifice himself is I saw Mm -hmm. Aslan when he goes to the stone Mm -hmm. table. And it, it felt very similar. Of course, Aslan knew the end, knew the, and Urchin didn't know that the end. He didn't know what was going to happen when he chose to make that sacrifice. But the giving up for others, that was probably the most moving scene for me in this book. Well, and I think that that contributes to the coming of age theme here. Thinking of what Tanya just said about the master and the apprentice, one of the reasons why this series is different than your standard, less well done teen fantasies is This is not about an all-powerful set of teenagers who are better than the adults, who are going to take over and be heroes and run the world. This is about brilliant adults who are going to mentor and raise up younglings who are themselves going to become, you know, if we go back to our Star Wars idea, you know, you're going to have multiple generations of a master and apprentice, a master and apprentice. When we get to book five, one of the reasons why I said to Margie in our, our interview with her, we need a book six is because the baton begins to be tilted yet again, that we're getting, that there's, there's younglings behind our now come of age characters. If we have Crispin as king, he's going to need an heir, and his heir is going to need a council around them. I say them to be gender nonspecific. And there's a lot there that begins to, she begins to set the stage for by the end of book five, and that's where we need a book six. We need to see how that baton continues to be passed forward. And I think that that's just 
why these books are so marvelous is because they have so much respect for the generations, so much respect for the master and apprentice process, so much respect for the coming of age, and that this is not about one hero. It's it's about a community. And about what's important in the culture and how we pass the culture on. So I just remembered this, that Fur was looking for an apprentice for himself. And then there was Tay. So he was also looking for someone that would be an apprentice to her, that would be basically the one that would continue, would know all the stories, would learn all of the stories, and then be able to continue telling the stories. So they're looking at those ways that the culture will continue on and the stories will be told. And the, I just, that is so powerful. And that is cross-generational, right? Like that is connecting every part of the community together and knitting them together. Like again, was it Sarah, Sarah Kim that said in the first one, this is a place I'd want to live. Was that you, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Again. Oh, like I want to create that at my home too. <laughs> it's interesting you say knitting because by the end of the fifth book, we have now multiple generations working on the threadings. And that becomes a very central feature in the fourth book. Threadings are very important. And we have young ones coming up to work on those underneath needle. I think not only that you show cross-generational respect, they also make a really important uh, point that levels of status within the society are also valued. Like one of my favorite characters was Lug, who, who just was just kind of the solid... I'm there to do what I need to do. I'm going to get it done. You know, yeah, I get hurt, but I just keep right on, you know, right. And, and there are so many places in society that someone with lugs characteristics wouldn't be considered valuable, but in mismantle, you're valuable because you're part of the community, not because maybe of, you know, you're the sharpest knife in the drawer. I really noticed the coming of age with Urchin because he makes that critical choice towards the end where he's just obviously really matured. Juniper, though, so far, I feel like has been acting instinctually. He makes amazing choices. You are impressed by him. He's sacrificial from the beginning, but it doesn't feel like a hard choice. It felt like he didn't have a choice. Like he's just acting instinctually. And I'm really anticipating his story because I feel like he's going to come to a place where he maybe needs to make some more firm decisions about what direction he's going to go. He has that sensitivity. He seems to be very powerful. And I just am really interested to hear more of his story. So like you were saying, there's multiple heroes. There are lots of interesting characters to follow and see what's going to happen next. Reminds me of that verse to whom much is given, much is asked. And Juniper, a lot is given. And so you get the feeling that lot is going to be asked of him in the future. I think that we underestimate Juniper at our peril. I think that what he did by chasing after that boat, it made it very clear that he is a most essential character and that he will, I, I agree with what you said, Sarah, he's acting instinctively, but and he needs to be mentored, okay? So going back to Star Wars, Tanya, this is what happens. If Juniper falls into the hands of the wrong mentor, what will happen to his power? Let him not become Anakin. <laughs> I actually did have that thought while I was reading it as well. Um, because like Sarah said, he is sensitive of spirit and he does have some gifts. And they do need to be mentored appropriately. I thought, ooh, that's interesting. I just love these books <laughs> so much. I cannot wait for you guys to read the next ones. <laughs> I'm going to say that every book club. <laughs> um. So Tanya keeps connecting things to Shakespeare and now uh, Star Wars. And I'm always back to Tolkien every time. And I, for me, the other connection was the reflection of evil in nature the environment of, of mismantle versus environment white wings where everything's dead and people are dying. And it just felt like the swamps in Tolkien's books where, you know, they're walking through and things. And it wasn't, you didn't get this in a sense of like a didactic forced lesson of this is evil. It was the interconnectedness of things that 
evil, it has ripple effects. And when you mess with it, it's going to not only affect the person involved, it's going to affect nature and your environment and everything that's around you. And so I really appreciated the stark difference between the two islands in that. Yes. We were talking about um, how everybody has a place. Everybody is important. And Laura was just talking about the lessons in nature and all those kinds of things. I think that it's worth being pointed out that none of that is didactic. It's There aren't any big ta-da lessons on how even the smallest character has a place. And wow, even Juniper, he might seem that he's you know insignificant, but yes, he's going to have a big role someday. And, and, um, here, here's evil, here's good. And let's, let's have a hit you over the head moment with all the themes. It's all just really natural and, and human the way things are working. It, none of it is, you know, the author saying, I'll bet little kids are going to need this to be more obvious and, and making it so that it's painful. All of this just happens very naturally. And I very, I'm appreciate that about Margie. Yeah, I agree with you. It's where she is a very, very skilled storyteller. I was just wondering if anybody else noticed how many tree names there were for the characters from White Wings. And and it was a contrast for me to that island and how all their trees were dying and covered in ash. So I just thought that was really interesting. And I did the thing I usually do and looked up what those different trees symbolized because I figured <laughs> maybe Margie named them certain things on purpose. Uh, but I was just curious if anybody else had thoughts about that. And My kids and I noticed the same thing when we were reading Sarah. It it was like, this just feels like an oxymoron. Why do we have all these trees in a place that has no trees? And I think, I think it's because hope springs eternal. Yeah, because they're supposed to have trees. Yeah, and that is a part of the story, right? That they're they're planning to bring some of the earth from Mismantle to help bring this island back to what it's supposed to be. To me, that becomes a very spiritual thing, you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and that the earth will be restored. What did you find, Sarah, about the names? Cedar symbolizes strength. And I thought this was interesting. I don't know if Margie would have known this, but the Western red cedar is called the Tree of Life by one of the indigenous tribes of British Columbia. I thought that was interesting. Juniper symbolizes purification and protection. And you might remember... In the Bible, there's a juniper that shelters Elijah from Queen Jezebel. And then Almond, who we find out, big spoiler, (laughs) is Urchin's mother, is a symbol of resurrection uh, because it's the first tree to flower. (laughs) Also represents the purity of the Virgin Mary. And Larch, who's the true queen, symbolizes maternal love because it very often offers food and shelter to squirrels. Oh. <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> and then interestingly, I think silver birch symbolizes new beginnings and protection. Um, but it also was a representative of the Celtic goddess Bridget, who was patroness of healing, poetry, and smithcraft. So maybe it's that last tie-in because he's so obsessed with silver. And Margie probably would have been familiar with the Celtic Well, so that's interesting because it shows a promise of what Silver Birch could have been had he not allowed himself to become corrupted. I feel like she chose those names intentionally, just like you're suggesting. And I don't think that she condemns any of her characters. She doesn't give any bad guys bad names because she still hopes that all of her characters will find their way back to the heart, even though they don't. She hopes that they will. So their names are still noble because... Maybe they can find their own in you know their own dignity and nobility. That really came through too with the character that ends up betraying Crispin. There's still a sense of hope there that maybe they'll be redeemed, that they did it because of their past and all that they had been through under Husk, and that maybe they would, would come around again despite their betrayal. And it goes back to what she said in the interview, you know, when she said she was the woman crying in the kitchen. And wondering, why am I the woman crying in the kitchen? Because I'm the woman crying in the kitchen. I need to stop crying in the kitchen. I need to change things for myself. I ha- So she was acknowledging she had her own dignity and her own capacity for change. But some people just won't change. 
doesn't mean that they don't have the capacity. It means that they don't have the will. What did you guys think about this book in terms of sensitivity for young readers? That was a big concern in our first discussion. How did you feel about this one? I felt like this one was less jarring. I felt like the evil and the violence was maybe a little more subtle in this so that it could go over the heads of a younger reader, but they would still enjoy the story. I kind of felt it was pretty on par with the first one. I felt like the ritualistic things that Smoke Wreath does were brought to light pretty powerfully. And the murder and the the like wanting to murder. I mean, Husk wanted to murder too, to feed it. But there were some pretty blatant murders of of people right in front of other people's eyes. Like it Husk was hidden. Smoke Wreath just brought it out into the open. And so I have a very sensitive eight-year-old right now. I again think it's about on par with the first one and I would want to pre-read it and, and prepare for it as a parent. I come back to what I said the first time is that there's a, a time and a place for each book for each kid and a parent should probably preview and see because I think there's some eight-year-olds that would probably handle this and it would be great for them. So that's kind of, I'm just, I think it's about equivalent to the first. It's just, I feel like the transparency makes it less shocking than the first one, the transparency of good and evil, but what cedar or what um, urchin undergoes is maybe a little more brutal. And the potential for urchin to sacrifice himself is also just, I think it's more life and death and it hangs over him so heavily. So I think I concur with you, Tanya, that to me, they're, they're about equal, but for different reasons. Well, also, I think Tanya's talking about eight-year-olds because she has an eight-year-old that she's reading it to right now. But when I think about a lot of the eight-year-olds that I know that I'm that I'm teaching, that's probably just a little bit young in, in most cases. You know, you have to decide for your own child. But what if we said 10, 10 to 12? I think that probably most 10 to 12-year-olds this none nothing in here would be really difficult for them to handle and it's not the scariness the evil in in this one really like uh Tanya was saying they're different but as far as the level goes where maybe your 10-year-old handled the first one then they ought to be able to handle the second one there's there isn't something that's like um, we don't go um exponentially more scary or evil in the next book and then the next one Unlike other series where they do. Right. Yet Margie's not trying to one-up herself. No. When it comes to that kind of a thing. Evil and scariness. Evil is just evil. There's nowhere worse you can go from here. But we're learning discernment each time in that, okay, it's, it's evil is evil, but here's how it looks in this instance. Still evil, but you have to have your eyes open. Well, and I think as each character grows, they have to face that evil on their own. And so that puts it in a diff- a little bit of a different light. Like evil as you're watching someone older and stronger face it, and then when it becomes a personal battle. And so that's how it progresses in this book. It progresses with the maturity of the characters, not as in the evil starts small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I love what we've said here, that there are plenty of good versus evil stories that can be told, and every one of these books is going to deal with good versus evil. The evil is always going to be different. I think we need to talk about the Heartstone. It's in the title, and I feel like this is one of the areas where in this story you really see the power of the heart and that the heart is directing things. And when the characters towards the end of the book are trying to get back to Miss Mantle and they're taking the boat and they're not sure if they're going to be able to get through the mists and they make it and you don't find out until later <laughs> it was the Heartstone trying to get home that has enabled all these ships to get through these mists and so the characters are doing their part they're praying they are trying to get maybe up above the mists they bring the swans just in case you know they're doing all the right things but at the end of the day it, it's really the heart and the other part of the story, I think that that just really comes through also towards the end is the end of all the evil. <laughs> just like totally taken care of in one fell swoop. 
<laughs> it is like a great thing. Woo, everything worked itself out. <laughs> but it's not the same. I think that through a lot of that, I kept thinking, oh, we're not going to do that again, are we? Because we already know that once you leave, you can't come back and you can't come back the same way that you left and all those things. And it's, are we going to, are we going to just keep going through the same thing over and over again? No, it's going to be completely unexpected and, but make complete sense also. And we asked Margie about that. We asked her, you know, with the mists and coming back through, why is it that some get through? And she said, because it's not about the mists. It's not superstition. It's about the heart. And the heart is protecting this island that the heart loves. Remember, it's not the mists. It's the heart. It's not the heart stone. It's the heart. I think the heart stone just exemplifies what the heart is doing. That's all. It's beautiful. And the prophecies do the same thing, right? They're about Urchin or they're about the other characters and their actions come true. But again, it's, it's the activity of the heart that's enabling those prophecies to come true. Right. It's a gift of the heart so that they have the knowledge they need in order to see what is coming or what is needed. And we, you know what else we didn't have time to talk about? We're Urchin's parents. So many things. <laughs> it's a pretty complex, in-depth book with a lot of moving pieces, a lot of characters that are important. And yet it doesn't feel complex when you're reading it. It feels like a very well-told tale. It's just very interesting and it moves right along. But then all of a sudden you realize there's more here than we can talk about in an hour. And here I was worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about. <laughs> well, and I think that's okay if we don't talk about everything. Go read the book and, and you'll have all the details. We know we just scratched the surface. We know we have only begun. We beg you, if you would like to chat with us, we would love to chat with you. Join us in Mighty Networks and come and talk about this book. Tell us you think we're wrong. <laughs> Tell us you think we're right. Tell us what you thought was important or ask us why we didn't cover something. And let's have a great chat. You can find the link in the show notes. Ladies, it is such a gift that you are here. Cannot wait to have you come back again next month so we can talk about the next book, which is a different book yet again. 